0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hello, I'm Aisha Kai, host of The Griot's Writing Black Podcast. In West African tradition, to be a griot is to be a storyteller, one who carries and communicates the experiences and legacies of a people. As The Griot's lifestyle editor, I've always been fascinated by how we tell our stories. That's why we launched Writing Black, to explore the myriad ways... Black writers craft stories and communicate our experiences. Thank you for joining us. Here's an excerpt from this week's guest. The first mistake you made was in trying to reason with it. Do you hear us? You attempted to understand the source, hear the beat, find the rhythm for something that sprang from chaos. Never, never look into the heart of that which has no heart to speak of. Foolish. You sought the nature of something that occurred by accident, so has no nature at all. Things without a nature always seek one, you see, and can only obtain one through plunder and then consumption. They have a name. They all have a name. Separation. You have been warned. Robert Jones Jr., thank you for joining us here on Writing Black. How are you?
0: I am doing well and I feel so privileged to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me.
1: (laughs) Well, it's such a treat for us as well. um, You know, this is a new podcast for The Griot, uh, where we're really talking to writers about the craft of writing, about what inspires them, and especially what it means to be writing while black. So, (laughs) you know, I couldn't think of anybody better To kind of, you know, dig into this with. Then you, actually, you know, your book, The Prophets, uh, was an instant bestseller when it came out last year, and uh, now it's out in paperback, so people can enjoy it. They can take it to the beach this summer. They can take it wherever they want to go. It's phenomenal, and is also, in in the year and change since it uh, debuted, become a National Book Award finalist, in addition to any number of other accolades and et cetera. It's an, an acclaim, just so much acclaim, pages and pages of it. <laughs> <laughs> has it, has it all settled in for you yet? Are you, are you, has it, has it settled in your soul yet? What you have c- accomplished here?
0: You know what? No. Um, it's It feels like it's happening to some guy named Robert Jones Jr. over there and I'm watching it happen. It does. I have not yet internalized it and I'm wondering how much of that has to do with being Black in this country. Because you know how hard it is sometimes for Black people to receive and accept joy? We're always waiting for the other shoe to drop because it's um, our joy is always so fleeting because of mm. whatever is going on in the in the culture. Mm. So I don't let myself hold on to joy very long. And I know that's terrible. But so when the good things happen to the book, I feel it for a split second, and then I'm back to the worries. And I got to say, I mean, that's that.
1: how we arm ourselves, right? <laughs> Isn't that kind of how we protect ourselves? By never, yes. leaning, too, too, it, never leaning too much into the triumphs, unless they, you know, unless they go away quickly. And I think, you know, I, I mean, oddly, well, not so oddly, since you wrote it, I mean, this is also the dichotomy that you are exploring in The Prophets. You know, this idea of this incredible intense love, you know, love for community, love for another human being, um, even love of self and trying to figure out if that can exist in in Mm. a place that is determined to make you nothing. Right. Right. Um, can we talk about that for a minute? Like how, how, how are you trying to balance the scales there in, in terms of writing the prophets?
0: You know, when I, took up the endeavor of saying, okay, I'm going to write a book about a Black queer couple in a time period I had never seen them in. And this time period is going to be antebellum slavery. I had to say to myself, what's going to counterbalance this idea that slavery was the defining feature of our ancestors? And the only answer for me was love. That is where I found that I could give um, these enslaved characters dimension, humanity, life that was defined separate from the degradation. I didn't want to shy away from the fact that this was a very dehumanizing uh, period and that slavery is a horrific enterprise. But I also didn't want that to be the trait that I attached to these characters. I wanted to find the human in them because in so many stories you find that slavery is the thing that makes the enslaved, that animates the enslaved. I wanted them to be animated by other things like laughter and getting their hair braided by their best friend and love.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, you know, listen, the book is arresting. It does. It deserves every accolade it's gotten. It's, it, even returning to it a year after the fact, I was like, you know, you're finding new things. and That's always a joy when you're reading a book to, like, find new things and be like, oh, I hadn't really thought of it like that. Um, you named this book The Prophets, um, and you've given, I think, every single character, if, I mean, if not most of them, a biblical name. <laughs> Yes, and I really want to talk about that because you know we have um, we have the Bible as scripture, we have the Bible as text, right? <laughs> you know, right. depending on who you are and what you believe, or maybe you believe both, right? Um, so, what was the impetus for you to kind of ride that theme through this novel?
0: Well, I knew that if I was going to tackle. Black queerness during the antebellum slavery period, that I was going to have to address the elephant in the room, which is how did we, as enslaved Africans removed from our home and put into this new place to work as beasts, learn to look at queerness or transgenderness or what have you as something ugly and sinful? And all of the research pointed to. A, a before time in Africa or a pre-colonial time in Africa in which that was not the case, where queerness and transgenderness, or those, the things that we call queerness and transgenderness now, had a place in those um, pre-colonial societies um, and not like a, a separate place, but a place in the community. It was not considered something wrong or sinful or bad. It was just considered a normal part of the human experience. Until European colonization and Christian missionary work. Mm-hmm. So I had to pointedly say Christianity is the start of homophobia or transphobia, and I had to show the ways in which um, these Europeans used Christianity to divorce us from our, um, our histories and our traditions and our culture and our understandings and our languages and our names. Mm-hmm. And one of the first acts that um, uh, an enslaver would do is snatch away your given name at birth and give you a Christian name to exert a, a kind of power over you, to say whatever you were before ends now and your, de- your, your dehumanization begins with this name. And so that is why I had to look at Christianity from a critical point of view.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think we should. I mean, I, I think we should look at everything with a critical point of view. Um, you even named, you know, your your white characters <laughs> biblical names. I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, <laughs> and they are fascinating characters. They really are. And, and you know, they are uh I mean, it is such a gift and a talent. When we talk about the craft of writing, I think one of the hardest things um, is character development, right? You know, um, at least in my experience. Yes, you know, yes. It's, it's developing these characters. It's one thing to tell your own story, right? But you here are telling myriad stories. You know, you you have this cast of characters and people are getting their own chapters and, you know, we're getting these, like, you know, condensed histories, but these really poignant tellings. Um, I, I, I have a feeling I know the reason why, but I want to know the how <laughs> of it all.
0: I actually started writing The Prophets or what became The Prophets from the point of view of one character. Um, it was going to be Isaiah's story. Um, At the time, he was named Hannibal, and the the, the novel was entitled Sing Hannibal, Bear Witness. And it was going to be basically Isaiah relaying his story to a historian who was um, writing it down for posterity. But then I quickly realized the limitations of Isaiah's point of view. I needed to say and do things that would have been outside of Isaiah's purview. So I said, okay, well, what I'll do is instead I'll have a conversation going back and forth across distance and maybe across time between Isaiah and his lover, Samuel. But that too was limiting until I realized that what this story was really about was their love and that love needed witnesses. And so I would need a cast of characters to tell me their points of view about what they thought Samuel and Isaiah were, what they were doing, how they felt about the love between them, whether that was, um, whether they were inspired by it or disgusted by it. Um, I wanted a full view. And then, because of a dream I had, I decided that the ancestors also needed a voice in the book. And I said, they will act as the guide for the reader to pull them through this story, and then eventually pull them through time so that we could link certain um, pathologies back to their source. Um, And that is sort of how it came together. And that, it it didn't just come in like a couple of months or a couple of years. I don't think I got to that um, uh, structure until maybe I was maybe nine or 10 years in on writing this manuscript.
1: So I love that you talked about time. (laughs) I love that you talked about it, you know, because I I think whatever kind of writing you do, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day and and they were talking, we were talking about songwriting, uh, which is something I've done a lot of. Oh, wow. You know, um, you know, I I was just saying offhandedly, I was like, yeah, I have songs that have taken minutes to write and I have songs that have taken years Mm. to write. And, you know, with the prophets, I mean, it's, it's obvious like the the tremendous amount of research like act, you know actual factual things that you had to kind of excavate to create this fictional world yes um when did this uh, when did this what was the genesis of this project?
0: I was an Africana studies minor in undergrad and was reading all of these glorious works by um anyone from Zora Neale Hurston to Wallace Thurman to Alice Walker to Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. And I was just overwhelmed by the brilliance, but was made starkly aware of the absence or um, the minimization of Black queer figures, particularly prior to the Harlem Renaissance. And I wanted to know why. So I, I was going through the canon And I was looking for examples of the existence of Black queer people in these time periods. And I found in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, um, a scene in which she describes how an enslaved man was chained to his master's bed and that his master would use him for sexual purposes. And then also in Toni Morrison's Beloved, she has a character named Paul D. And Paul D. is sexually assaulted by a male overseer in one part. And I thought to myself, yes, these things probably did happen. But here's my question. What about love? Right. And because Morrison herself said, if you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you
1: must write it. I said, doggone it. I'm going to have to write this book. <laughs> <laughs> this book that has garnered you a lot of comparisons to Morrison. So you obviously pulled that off. <laughs> you, you know, and you do something I mean, I think it's worth saying, and I don't think it's a spoiler, um, that, you know, Isaiah and Samuel aren't even the only queer characters in the book, right? Right. So it's like, it's really, um, I mean, I love that. I I loved it personally in terms of this sense of really firmly establishing the fact that this has always been. Um, And you do something really gorgeous with gender, too, um, in that discussion, where in reaching back to that ancestral line and, and that ancestral sensibility, you talk about this idea of not identifying a person as a gender until they their nature reveals themselves, I guess, is maybe my condensed way of saying it. Yes. Le- way less elegant than you said it. <laughs> but, but this idea of being, you know, and that, then when you did identify yourself or you were identified, you know, it could be, it wasn't on a binary, you know, it could be woman, it could be man, it could be free, it could be all, correct? Did I get that yes, right? Yes, you I did. I think I did. Yes, you did. <laughs> and I just thought that was so stunning, you know. Um, was that something that you... Conceptualize for yourself as like an ideal that you would love to see us accomplish? I mean, I would, but, uh, or was it something that you read and, and picked up and just really wanted to bring back into our present day consciousness?
0: You know, I thought it was something that I was just um, hopefully imagining. But then I discovered that there were indeed ac- ac- African societies that did not give their child a gender and that the child at a certain point in their development decided what. They were. Um, I don't know if the choices were man, woman, free or all, but I know that the child had the choice. So in, in some ways I felt like, wow, I, I, maybe this is blood memory in some way that I just mm. knew on the inside that this had to be the case based on the things that I already knew about African societies and that I was learning about African societies. So that was just one of those wow moments.
1: I mean, it was a wow moment reading the book as well. I, I, you know, I think any of us who, um, you know, whether you're queer or not, I think anybody who seeks to see a world in which that's not, you know, a huge thing, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, I think I loved it. I thought it was so, I thought it was such a great um, device and such. And at, at the point that it came in the novel, I felt like it was really what you kind of need as a reader to kind of expand your your thinking to kind of move forward. I thought that Mm -hmm. was really gorgeously done. And I had to just let you know. Well, I can't wait to hear more. Stay tuned for more from The Writing Black Podcast.
0: The Griot Star Stories with Teray coming soon on The Griot's Black Podcast Network.
1: Welcome back to The Writing Black Podcast. So you were writing this book for over a decade. Um, in that same time, uh, you had a very popular uh, online presence as son of Baldwin. You were wearing a Baldwin t-shirt as we speak, so. <laughs> and I know that's how I came to first know you. In fact, I'm gonna be perfectly honest. When The Prophets came out and I realized like, <laughs> that it was you, I was like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and a lot of people have leveraged. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who have leveraged, you know, their social media identities into bigger things, you know, like have garnered book deals from their social media presence. Is that what happened with you or were these two separate things?
0: Um, they were two separate things as far as um, how I got my book deal. Um, mm-hmm. which really didn't matter to um, my agent or really my publisher. Um, and they thought maybe afterwards that um, I would have this large platform and I can then promote the book to this large platform. And, but what, what the industry is discovering is that um, large platforms on social media don't translate to book sales um, mm. because your audience is used to free content. And then if you are trying to now pitch them something to buy, they're they're kind of skeptical and they're like, oh, you know, I don't I don't want to do this. So we're we're not they're not seeing the correlation that they thought they would see. So really, it it's separate. Um, And I I like that it's separate because the the stuff that I do on Son of Bolden, while it does inform and help develop my craft as a writer is different and it requires a different part of my brain. Than when I'm Robert Jones Jr., the author writing these fictional stories and trying to imagine these lives and make them feel as authentic as possible.
1: I, I mean, yeah, because <laughs> I mean, social media isn't authentic. That's the weirdest part, right? That's the irony of social media. <laughs> like it's right. kind of like, you know, where it's it's a it's a another performance platform. You know, like mm. we are performing our emotions, we are performing our lives for. Right you know, the enjoyment or scrutiny or empathy or whatever it is we're, we're trying to achieve of others. Yes. Um, and you, uh, well, on on Freedom Day, otherwise known as Juneteenth, you kind of made a bid for, I I'm, I took it as a bid for your own freedom, and you made the announcement that the beloved son of Baldwin would be no more. Um, and- you know, there is an essay online, people can read it, but I would love to hear from you personally um, why you felt that it run its course. Like why, why, why you felt that now was the time to kind of exit that arena that really had brought you this tremendous platform and tons of friends and associates and yes. so on and so on, kind of hanging on your every word. Uh, why, why was it time to let that go?
0: And you're right. In a lot of ways, Son of Baldwin was a blessing, because if not for Son of Baldwin, Kiese Layman would have never heard of me. And if Kiese Layman would have never heard of me, he would have never introduced me to his literary agent, and I probably never would have been published. Kiese Lehman is the first person to give me um, my first publishing job. I, I published an essay um, on Gawker through Kiese. Um, So in many ways, it was a blessing, not just personally, but just being able to have the kinds of discussions I was having. Um, But what I discovered lately um, is that uh, I was recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and I was noticing um, a correlation between my flare ups of the illness and my engagement on social media, particularly if the engagement had a negative tone. So I said, okay, I I gotta really pay attention to my health if I wanna be around. And second, I began to notice the ways in which social media has been co-opted by the 1%, by the right, conservatives, GOP, um, to be used in ways that are oppressive and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I'm. I started to realize this is not the transformative space, or at least it's not transformative in the way that I had hoped. Like I thought it was going to be in the beginning, when we were seeing, you know, this galvanization of um, these forces of people who were trying to do away with oppression and um, uh, make the world a legitimately better and freer and more equitable place. Mm-hmm. Now um, we have. The Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs, these billionaires set to be trillionaires on the ways they've coded these systems to focus on the negative and focus on the divisive and profit from it. I Um, mean,
1: I think we can all agree Trump would not have become president without social media, right? Come on. Come on, somebody. You got the apprentice. (laughs) I mean, the apprentice is one thing, but like, you know, social media was that was a social media driven campaign.
0: Oh, yes, it was.
1: So are you doing away with all social media? Are you just saying, like, I'm on a social media-free diet? Or are you doing away with this particular platform, which attracts so many people, both positive and seriously negative?
0: I am doing away with social media entirely. Like, even my non-Son of Baldwin personal Robert Jones accounts, I'm getting rid of it completely so that I could focus with all of my capacity on perfecting the art form. I want to be the best writer I could possibly be. And social media was interfering with that.
1: Well, listen, I totally support your bid to be an analog boy in a digital world. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think, listen, I think we could all do with more of that. I say that as a fellow writer who's like, yeah, I don't do that enough. I watch way too much TV. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm on social media too much. I'm so much more interested in everybody else's stories, right? Um, so what are you working on?
0: I am working on the second novel um there's really not much I can say about it yet but okay. I can tell you that it takes place in Brooklyn um and probably during the early to mid 90s mm. um, and there's some, some
1: that was really a golden time I was there <laughs> me too
0: me too I, I you know I just turned 51 that was my time um, okay so-, so we're
1: not that far apart in age'm I'm, I'm, I'm a few years younger but that was the time. That was the time. I used to live on Biggie's old block. So, you know, just to let you, you come know. on. Come on, Brooklyn. So yeah, it was it was a time. It was a time to be alive.
0: Yes. It was <laughs> so much was happening in that time period. It's it's ripe for exploration.
1: It really is. You know, it's I saw something yesterday that was so interesting to me. You know, we talk a lot about how and I know you'll relate to this, you know, how gen X gets skipped a lot whenever they talk about generations, right? And yet Gen X is the genesis for so much other stuff that happens now, you know. Uh <laughs> you know, everybody from who your faves are, you know, it's like Jay Z is Gen X, right? You know, yes. um, Jennifer Lopez is Gen X, <laughs> you know, all these kind of mm-hmm. people who are still stars are Gen Xers. And then, you know, when you talk about you know, Elon Musk. If you, if you, if that's how you get down, not, you know, <laughs> guys, you know. But I, like this generation is—it's quiet and it's small, but it was intensely productive. And I think, like, you know, somebody made the point that nine eleven overshadowed a lot of the really dramatic events of the nineties. Mm. There were some really serious things, including, you know, obviously the first bombing at the World Trade Center. But like, right. you know, it was this tremendous time of really intense uh, change and threats to humanity and threats to democracy. Like that was kind of yes. the first wave of of that, that we knew, I guess, as our yes. generation. Uh, how do you, what do you make of that? Like, what do you make of like, where, gen- where do we fit in? You know, I need to know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um <laughs> you know that's
1: that. As we, I mean the the 90s are back so I want to know where do we fit in because <laughs> that was our, you, that was our era. <laughs> yeah.
0: Look, um everything that you said is part of the reason why I want to explore this time period and remember things that have gotten that have been forgotten. Yeah. Um I, you know one of the quins, quintessential things I remember about the 90s is Janet Jackson's That's the Way Love Goes video and how yes. that kinda inc- that, that was us. We were, you know, oh, smooth and neo just just Listen, beginning to get I Neo Soul.
1: I had a choker through <laughs> the bus. I was there. I was ready. <laughs>
0: go back to that video because one of her backup dances is Jennifer it's Lopez. Jlo
1: I know I know
0: <laughs> come on that like that video says so much about what who we were and mm-hmm. then we gave birth to D'Angelo and yes. Erica Badu Phil
1: Scott all yes the roots the roots, the roots. Genics, you know?
0: come on <laughs> it, and all of that gets forgotten because like you said it's overshadowed by the other things that were happening during that time period particularly later we get to 9 mm-hmm. 11. Um, um, yes. Aliyah's death, mm-hmm. um, Left Eye's death—all mm-hmm. of those things make you forget that Gen X, mm-hmm. yo, we we kept it popping,
1: and we're we still holding this... it down. We really are still and we're holding still it down. Quietly, holding it
0: down. <laughs> yes. yes, I
1: love that. I love that so much. I actually can't wait to hear how you plumb into that era, because when I look at what you did with the prophets, you know, and how much love and research. You put it, I mean, you really feel the love that you have for us as a people, um, even, you know, what all of us know to be the ugliest chapter of our existence here in America. You know, as, as horrible as things are now, obviously, it it just it doesn't even touch it. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I feel that love for me. I can't wait to to see what comes next. Um, any takeaways we should take? You know, the profit's out now on, on paperback, in paperback, rather. Um, yeah. And as more people are picking up, I hope, and handing it out, what do you hope people are taking from this incredible first novel of yours?
0: Oh, my. I hope um, that, like you alluded to, that the people who read this feel the intense love that that I have in particular for black communities black people all over the, the diaspora um and maybe and hope that some someone internalizes that love and passes it on that is that is my greatest
1: hope all right i love that um and you mentioned ksi layman and i i got to say for those people who are not familiar with gsa like he first of all was incredible writer, but also Mm. is kind of like this has become something of a godfather, I would say, as young as he is. Um, He's the best kind of writer, which is a writer who loves other writers, you know? Yes. Uh, He's not territorial, he's not, you know, he doesn't hold, he loves other writers and he loves Black people. But in addition to him, are there any other authors you would recommend?
0: Oh, yes, there's so many. Um, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Deesha Filyaw. Yes. My my goodness, my goodness. Um, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle by Dante Stewart. The Final Revival of Opal and Nev Donnie by L- yes. Donnie Walton. That's right. My goodness, that 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 was my favorite book of twenty twenty one.
1: It was uh, I just, definitely one of my favorites. <laughs> I,
0: I I I adored it. Um, and then of course, Kiese Layman's Long Division. Like mm-hmm. his work is fantastic. Oh, and one more, Patriarchal Blues by um, oh, Patriarchal Blues by Frederick Joseph.
1: That's a good list. I love it. And thank I adore you. you. And I, I will not be seeing you in the social media street, so I'm going to make sure to get your email so I can harass you in other ways.
0: <laughs> yes, I, I, will, I will gladly give you my information.
1: But thank you so much for joining us on Writing Black and helping to kick this podcast off right. Um, <laughs> you are one of many incredible voices that we'll be featuring here, and I am just so thrilled that you came and blessed us with your... Just your, your presence is just, you're so lovely to be around. Thank you, Robert.
0: Thank you, Maisha. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad you have this show. Thank you so much for doing this work. (laughs)
1: Thank you. (laughs) So here we are at the part of the episode that I tend to favor, which is my favorites. You know, we were talking this week with uh, Robert Jones Jr., who is one of my favorite writers right now. I just think, um, and, and it has been for a while, Son of Baldwin, If you haven't checked it out, check out the archives. He did some of the most um, provocative, incisive discussions of the last few years. And whether or not you always agree isn't really the point. The point is that somebody was willing to have those discussions in a way that was not intended to do anything other than make us think. And unfortunately, there's a rarity of that these days. You know, The Prophets is a remarkable, remarkable novel for many reasons, groundbreaking, but I do not want to leave out another novel that is also another historical uh, fiction novel that came out uh, last year called The Sweetness of Water. Uh, This is part of Oprah's Book Club, just like Robert's, (laughs) Um, 2021. And this is by Nathan Harris, who uh, another incredible writer. This is another book that touches on a theme that we're not always so familiar with, which is the era of reconstruction in the United States. Like we talk a lot about uh, the period of enslavement. um, We talk about the civil rights movement, you know, we even talk about black arts, you know, black Panthers, but the era of reconstruction is one that I think is largely untouched and misunderstood. Maybe I'm wrong there, but Nathan does something um, really gorgeous here uh his his use of language is gorgeous uh, hopefully we'll have him on the podcast to discuss but the sweetness of water um is a really I think pertinent discussion about how you had freely like your newly freed people navigating um a a white a still white dominated world and uh I loved it I hope you'll love it and check it out Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the GRIO app or wherever you find your podcasts. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here, and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the Black perspective. Ready for real talk and Black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard.